When we talk about illness and treatment, we often neglect to break it down into some of its most human parts. A cancer diagnosis perhaps pushes us to be more mindful, and that's a good thing. In the immediate moments and aftermath of someone being told they have cancer, patients and family members, but patients especially, are often in need of particular kinds of support, information, and navigation. Different types of cancer and differing prognoses may impact what precisely is most helpful, but recognizing that the first 10 days or so is an important and highly emotional part of the cancer treatment journey all unto itself seems critical. Fortunately, this recognition is starting to translate into some better practices and also helping to identify current gaps in services, smoothing the way for patients and families who've just been told of a cancer diagnosis on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We offer this to you biweekly and also for later listening, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, based on your experience as a patient or caregiver or maybe both, uh, it's a safe bet that many of you joining today's WIHI have something to say about what can be improved when a cancer diagnosis first jolts that sense of well-being and can cause some fear. We hope you'll share your ideas with us on the show. First, we're going to hear from a great panel about some of the needs they've identified in those first days after a diagnosis and some pr- practices to better address uh, some of those gaps. So I'm eager to introduce our guests, but first, here's IHI's John Gothier with some reminders about engaging with WIHI. Today, John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window. If you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to press, the, press pause on the audio WebEx player and then pr- press play. If that persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know, and their phone number is on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with our chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always on the way looking to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after our program to fill out a quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks, John. If you like to tweet, uh, thanks for including at the IHI in your tweets. And when we get to Q&A, um, uh, also, that's another way to enlarge our conversation. All right. I have some brief guest introductions, and I want to welcome our panel today. Their fuller bios appear on the slides you're about to see and on the WIHI program pages. Joining us by phone from Michigan, Robert Chapman is the director of the Josephine Ford Cancer Center and the division head of hematology oncology at the Henry Ford Health System. A lung cancer specialist, Dr. Chapman was recently the principal investigator on a demonstration project to reduce disparities in cancer care among minority patients. Welcome, Bob Chapman. 
Thank you. Great. Joining us from Wisconsin, also by phone, is Jeffrey Landercasper. He's been a physician and clinical researcher at Gunderson Health Center, for, excuse me, System, for more than 30 years. His main research interests focus on identifying and correcting gaps in the quality of care provided to breast cancer patients. Welcome, Jeff Landercasper. Thank you. All right, and here in the studio with me, it's always a pleasure to have some peop- some company. Uh, don't you think so, John? Always. Always. Pat Rutherford is the Vice President at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. She's responsible for many things, including uh, developing and testing innovations and new models, and most recently with patient and family-centered care and improving access to the right care in the right place at the right time. Welcome, Pat. Thanks, Madge. And we also have a great honor here all the way from Austin, Texas. We're honored to have Leonard Barry in the studio. Len is University Distinguished Professor of Marketing in the Mays Business School at Texas A&M University. He's got a track record for unearthing what's working and what isn't in healthcare. He's found both this past year looking at cancer care, as you're about to hear. So welcome, Len. Thank you, Madge. All right. Well, Len is going to get our first <laughs> question here. Uh, Len, there would always be good reasons to have this discussion, but uh, we're prompted to do so because uh, we had the great pleasure of having you as a senior fellow uh, with IHI for several months, and you were hard at work uh, in your research on uh, what's going on in the cancer care journey for patients and families using your very distinguished service industry lens. So my first question is, tell us why that lens is helpful and why you decided to focus on the cancer experience and some of the, we're, we're boiling down a lot of work, so stay tuned for more from Len over the next year, of course, but uh, what, what are some of the things you learned? Well, thank you, Madge. For the last year, I, I've been studying how we can improve the service experience for cancer patients and their families as they make the journey from the initial diagnosis onward. I've been to uh, 10 different cancer centers across the country for visits. I've interviewed uh, more than 350 patients and family members and oncologists and surgeons and nurses and and others. Uh, And one of the questions, one of the questions that I ask all the patients that I interview is, what if anything, what if anything is different about a diagnosis for cancer versus a diagnosis for another serious disease. And in their own ways, every patient has answered this question the same. Immediately and intensely, they talk about the fear, the terror of hearing the word cancer for the first time from their doctor. The fear of death, is this a death sentence you're telling me, doctor? The fear of long treatment cycles and the fear of the side effects. Uh, The fear about the financial implications for the family. Uh, The family itself. Uh, Patients have told me in interviews, how am I going to tell my children that I have cancer? Uh, Patients have, have told me the fear of not being able to work again. And, and so what I've, what I've learned in part from this research journey I'm on is a cancer diagnosis is a fireball. It's an absolute fireball that turns your life upside down, your family's life up, upside down. 
it's not just a medical crisis, it's an emotional crisis. It's a great deal of emotional suffering that goes with the cancer journey. And so I believe one of the biggest improvement opportunities we have when it comes to service is the first 10 days from the moment the patient and the family learn there's cancer. How do we ease the path? How do we ease the path? How do we uh, how do we deal with the emotionally intense, physically demanding, consequential journey that patients and their families are about to make? I'd like to give just two brief examples before we turn it over to the other panelists uh, that I've uncovered in my research. One is the concept of the multidisciplinary cancer clinic. Uh, Two of the sites that I visited have this service. And basically what it is, is typically within a week of diagnosis, a patient and the family, if the patient wants the family there, which is usually the case, the patient and the family have an all-day appointment at the cancer center. They're put in a room, and one by one by one, the cancer team comes to visit the surgeon, then the radiation oncologist, then the medical oncologist, the dietitian, the social worker, the patient navigator, one by one. And at the end of the day, the patient and the family leave with a written care plan, which includes scheduled follow-up appointments. The benefits for this model are significant. The treatment plan may well improve, There will be less confusion, more coordination of care. The convenience of getting all of this done in one day cannot be overstated. And it certainly is going to enhance patient satisfaction, family satisfaction, and loyalty. I saw this concept at uh, Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake. I saw this concept at work at Integris Cancer Institute in Oklahoma City. And to see it in action is, is, is beautiful. So I think that's one of the concepts we need to consider. And then my second and final example in my opening remarks, uh, Madge, is just the wise use of patient navigation. Having a patient navigator right there from the outset, from the very beginning, a go-to person for that patient and for that family And one of the best examples I've run into in my research is in Green Bay, Wisconsin, at the Bellin Health System. Their patient navigators are called coaches, cancer coaches. These are social workers or nurses. They're trained with uh, special training in cancer. And from the very first appointment, they're in the room with the patient, with the doctor, with the family. They're taking notes as the doctor is interacting with the patient. And when the doctor leaves the examination room, the the coach stays behind with the family and the patient, uh, goes over the notes, uh, makes sure there are any questions uh, that need to be answered and answers the questions, and uh, provides that ongoing contact, that ongoing go-to resource uh, for the patient throughout the entire cycle of treatment. The patient and the family have the phone number. They can get on the, they can contact by phone, if not in person, the coach when they need the coach. So that too, I think, is a very powerful example. 
cancer is such a high emotion service and with these high emotion services we need to find a way to enhance the control the control put some control back into the life of the patient and the family Okay, thank you very much, Len. Appreciate those examples and some of the, your early uh, ideas and findings and framing. I'm going to turn now to Pat Rutherford. Um, Pat, in the immediate aftermath of a cancer diagnosis, how critical is it that patients and families know almost right off the bat that they're not in just good clinical hands, but in the hands of people that they know they can work with and trust? Well, I think that... Um that the relationships with the clinical team uh, that's uh, doing the diagnostics and and sharing the diagnosis and developing uh, the, the, the plan of treatment, the plan of care, I think that what's most critical from my perspective is what we're really promoting here at IHI in our work in person and family-centered care is really creating genuine partnerships. Uh, clearly, the oncologist and the team has tremendous expertise uh, uh, in diagnosis and treatment of cancer. But for me, you know, uh, who was thrust into the role of being a patient several years ago, um, I have the most unique understanding and expertise about my values and needs and preferences. And I think the balance and the sharing of that partnership, that partnership is really uh, between the, the patient and the family and with the clinicians, I think is critically important to uh, really the, the care that is in addition to the treatments. Uh, and I think that that's really, I think, critically important in all aspects of um, caring for patients, but I think particularly important in oncology care. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, I'm learning a lot over the last couple of years about oncology uh, treatments, and I think that there's been huge advances over the last decade with cancer care in personalizing medicine to very specific um, markers of that type of cancer uh, in individuals. On the left side of the slide here, you see that there's, you know, previously there was one treatment that, you know, may have had a great effect when part of the population, another, they didn't have any, you know, improvements at all, and then the other, they had a lot of toxic effects. And now they're able to really, through genetic uh, testing and molecular biology, really understand the very specific nature of an individual cancer. If, if this population has colon cancer, there's very specific differences amongst individuals. Um, so precision medicine or personalized medicine, I think, has made huge advances, uh, particularly in cancer care, about really matching the treatments to the very specific uh, physiological needs of that cancer treatment. Um, so my question is, you know, what about precision N-of-one care? Uh, so there's the treatment side of cancer care, and then there's the personal care side. And so I think much of what... Um, I think um, should be at hand is that personal uh, relationship with the clinicians and the care team and a simultaneous focus on what the clinical needs are and treatments as well as what the care is. I love the next, the quote on the next slide from Maya Angelou. I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And from the moment I met my oncologist and care team, uh, what I remember is not so much what they even said, although I certainly had a friend taking down notes about everything that I needed to really discern, uh, but what, what I remember 
is what, how I was made, made to feel that I was in trusting hands and a relationship that would partner with me about what was important to me and that would um, be very empathetic about each of the stage uh, of treatment that I went through. All right. So I want to just float, put, put, float up this one other slide, uh, John, that Pat put together that people can uh, take away with them. Um, just it really reflects pretty much what Pat um, just re, uh, was talking about. Well, I, if yes. I could just add oh, one please, piece to that. Um, yep. uh, in December, we uh, launched a sort of call to action about uh, a, a quote that came from an article that Michael Berry and Susan Edgman Levitan from Mass General wrote about shared decision making about what matters to you uh, is equally as important as what's the matter. And I think this has very is very appropriate for this. And so this is just some of the things that went through my mind, what was really important to me. And initially I wrote that list of those four bullets that are listed there, and I didn't include the last one. Um, and um, importantly enough, you know, that's probably the one that's been most impactful mm -hmm. is the empathy of people in system of care that I receive care. So I think that um, these are just some of my insights. All right. Thank you so much, Pat. Really appreciate that. All right. We're kind of connecting uh, different big big issues and different dots in, uh, in a compressed amount of time, but we hope we're, we're offering you some good food for thought and experience here. I want to go next to uh, Dr. Robert Chapman, Bob Chapman. Um, you have kind of an interesting role um, in the first days after a uh, cancer diagnosis um, in that you're often preparing for those first meetings, first meeting maybe, but first meetings between patients and, clin and, and the clinician. So I wonder if you could tell us how and why you've targeted these first encounters for improvement and what happens at Henry Ford that you think is uh, would be helpful for others to know about. Welcome again. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Madge, and frankly, I think the comments of uh, Len and Pat just set me up beautifully for what I think it's important for me to say from my perspective. Um, one of the, at Henry Ford, one of the first things that happens once a patient is, is diagnosed with cancer is it will trigger um, a meeting of the relevant tumor board for that particular cancer type. Uh, we have 13 different uh, tumor boards for different types of cancer, for leukemias, for breast cancer, for lung cancer, for colorectal cancer, et cetera. And um, these tumor boards are fora in which uh, physicians and other healthcare uh, partners come together to discuss specific individual cases right at the beginning. Um, it includes medical and radiation oncology, uh, depending on the tumor board, the appropriate surgical subspecialty, pathology, radiology, uh, relevant medical subspecialties, a nurse navigator, and from any of those areas, um, trainees as well. And what happens in the tumor board is that uh, an individual who knows the patient's background will present a basic overview of the case and how they present it. Then the radiologist will show images to help the group understand uh, where the disease is, how much of it is, there is, and, and at least what we can image of the extent of the disease. Uh, following that, uh, the pathologist will illustrate 
the actual uh, tissue that has been biopsied and um, how the di- explain how the diagnosis has been made. Following that, there'll be a, a detailed discussion amongst all the individuals there as to what the management plan should be. During this discussion, the nurse navigator is sitting there taking notes so that by the end of the discussion, uh, it may be there's a recommendation to get a PET scan or an MRI. There may be a recommendation for a particular consultation, um, a particular kind of biopsy. Um, The nurse navigator uh, will take those notes, will make those appointments, and actually contact the patient uh, to let them know that they've been presented in a tumor board as a result of the discussion, these appointments have been made for them. Um, On top of that, following the tumor board discussions, often immediately afterwards, um, will be followed by a multidisciplinary clinic um, for that exact tumor type where many of the patients who've just been discussed in the tumor board, I think that's highlighted on my next slide, um, will be Uh, will be present and have uh, an opportunity to be seen. And they will be seen, much as um, uh, Len Berry described, by the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, uh, medical subspecialist if necessary. Um, Whoever it was determined in the tumor board will play an important part in the patient's subsequent care. One of the frightening things about cancer care from a patient's perspective is that frequently, you know, one doctor from one specialty is not going to be able to um, offer the total spectrum of care so that everyone who may be playing a role in the patient's care, including uh, a social worker, the nurse navigator, perhaps a dietitian, will be present and available and will meet with the patient in that multidisciplinary clinic, and the patient will go home uh, with a written comprehensive plan uh, for their subsequent care. And I think that preparation prior to the visit and then the um, actual visit in which the overall care plan is uh, presented to the patient in a comprehensive way is a very important um, mechanism that we've developed to help manage not just the disease, but the tremendous fear and anxiety that often goes along with it. Let me just ask you very quickly, we're about to turn to Jeff Landercasper to talk about shared decision-making. Pat Rutherford was talking uh, about partnerships. Len uh, put a big line under high emotion. Uh, and I'm wondering kind of what goes through your mind or the minds of all these clinicians uh, as you're leading up to this discussion. You're obviously gathering a very comprehensive picture and clinical um, knowledge that you want to share with the patient. Uh, just just for a minute or so, I wondered, um, Bob, if you could just talk about that piece of it. What, what are you thinking about as you're engaging with patient and or family in that instance? Yeah, I think that's a very important question, and one of the things we recognize as oncologists is that sometimes we're not very good at identifying um, not only how much stress a patient may be under, but what the specific issues are 
that are contributing to that stress. And so one of the things that we've been begun doing um, really just in the last six months or so is um, having the patient um, address a tool. We call it our distress screening tool in which they indicate, am I under stress, am I not? If I am, is it a high degree, a low degree, do I feel I need help? And then uh, from a, a large menu, they have an opportunity to identify what specifically is the, are the principal causes of that stress. Is it fear of the underlying disease, fear of their ability to pay for the cost, fear of side effects of treatment, et cetera, so that by the time the doctor sees the patient for the first time, um, they will have at their fingertips um, the result of that screening tool as well so that that very important component of the patient's overall care can be addressed. Okay, thank you very much. Um, appreciate it, appreciate your thoughts on uh, that additional uh, comment. And um, some of the questions are starting to roll in, uh, but we're going to hear from Jeff Landercasper first, and uh, then we'll get to your questions and comments. So uh, thank you, Bob. So uh, Jeff Landercasper shared, dis- excuse me, decision-making has, we hope, become foundational for many things, but in particular also for cancer diagnosis in terms of uh, working together to determine next steps. So tell us what, what's going on at Gunderson and what are some of the uh, changes that you're particularly um, feeling good about? Thanks again. Thank you, Madge. I'd like to continue with the same theme of Lynn and Pat and Bob. Um, and I would also provide a comment, uh, perhaps for clarity of precision medicine that was uh, mentioned by Pat. And when we as a care provider talk about precision medicine, we're usually thinking, what is the exact um, agent um, that we're going to use for treatment dependent upon a patient's age and molecular profile, genetic information about their tumor? But there's another way of looking at personalized medicine that we're focusing on today that's just as important, and Bob touched on that too, and that's Uh, taking the patient's feelings into account. So I think of that as personalized medicine, too. It can be on a molecular level in deciding uh, targets for treatment, specific choices, but it can also be part of any decision that's made between the patient and their care provider. And it's decisions made on uh, patient's feeling and choices and whatever their background is, for example, My patients that I treat from the Amish community that have no um, third-party payer um, often have a different um, decision when we offer them radiation and chemotherapy uh, than my patients who have third-party payer support. So that's part of personalized decision-making at the patient level, not the molecular level. And I think Uh, to focus on shared decision-making, that the old model of shared decision-making between a patient and provider is dead, and it should be. That was a unidirectional and a paternalistic model. And the new models are better. They're bidirectional with shared decision-making with each patient, and there's true participation by the patient in those decisions. And I think the patient's experience and their trust after diagnosis 
can be set even before diagnosis. And what I mean by that is you can begin the shared decision-making and trust when the patient's undergoing diagnostic evaluation even before they have their cancer diagnosis. And the team that takes care of them can engage them uh, in their preference for how they be given the information of the diagnosis of cancer, which is always so impactful. Do you want to be called by telephone? Do you want to come to the office? Which office do you want to go to? What kind of specialist would you like to see? Do you want to see your primary care provider first? Uh, do you want to see a specialist first? Do you want to see a whole clinic full of specialists on one day? So the shared decision-making that helps build trust can begin even before the cancer diagnosis. Um, once the diagnosis has been made, the shared decision-making and the personalized medicine that goes with that on a patient level continues. And then you begin talking about many different types of treatment and their level of benefit and their level of risk. And there are different ways of uh, presenting information to the patient that are better understood than other ways. Inherent in effective shared decision-making is um, a distress tool that was mentioned by Bob, and they can be qualitative or quantitative, meaning you can get a general idea of a patient's stress in the first five minutes of a patient encounter, but the granular type of quantitative distress thermometer that Bob named, um, where they fill out a survey and you get more detailed information about why they have stress is, is really uh, an important way of determining what your strategy is to relieve stress. We always talk about timeliness with shared decision-making with our patients because many patients have the incorrect understanding that timeliness is so important that if they don't receive their treatment tomorrow, it may affect their outcome a year from now. Usually that isn't true. Usually timely care focuses on meeting a patient's emotional needs more than it uh, is improving their cure rate. So education's provided uh, about that to help their anxiety. That's part of the relief of their stress. And their survivorship program can really begin on the day of diagnosis. The survivorship program always means um, education, understanding, shared decision-making. And the ideal survivorship program is an iterative type of document that has all the information about their care and testing in an electronic or paper form, always accessible to the patient, always transferable from one specialist to another. If you don't have an integrated system like the ones that Len and Bob described, and not everybody has an integrated system, I'm lucky enough to be in an integrated system, but good care and trust and shared decision-making can begin in the smaller community and rule setting. That's gonna provide, that's gonna require a survivorship document and IT solution where you can add information as you learn it and it's easily transferable as that uh, patient moves around. Well, how complex can all of this be to try to meet all the patient's needs in a very short period of time? Could you show the next slide, please? We've got it. Thanks. Okay. Go ahead. So it is, it is very complex, and this is just 
part of this system that I work in where all of these other care providers are focused on the patient. The patient's in the center of the universe on this slide. The nurse navigators are the center of the universe in this slide. And all the rest of us are helping give best advice, um, help the patient with their anxiety, participate in our part of the shared decision-making, and a navigator is, is helping the patient understand and move from one specialty to the next. And then for the sake of time, uh, if we could move to the next slide. Got it. We're so this is, this is integral to shared decision-making at my institution. It's what I call numeracy. And similar to literacy, it means a care provider has to learn how to explain complicated statistics in a meaningful way for true shared decision-making to occur. And uh, there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of words on this slide, but I can summarize it. If you have a patient who has a very limited life expectancy from comorbidities, it is accurate, it's not dishonest to use the same statistics about level of benefit and level of risk of her treatment and give her two completely different numbers. One number you may give her overestimates her true benefit, underestimates her risk, and the other type of number you give her more correctly, in my opinion, lets her know level of benefit from a therapy. So in this specific situation, the patient could be told if she has radiation, she has a 50% benefit or a 3% benefit. It's not lying to her either way, but the appropriate way is to let her know her uh, benefit is more in the 3% level, and that helps her have true shared, shared decision-making. And we can wait for the sake of time on um, any national initiatives okay. that are relevant to this topic, if you'd like, Match. Yeah, that sounds fine. Why don't we do that? Um, I really appreciate your thoughts, uh, all of you taken together. Very, very um, important and um I don't know what what's the word, you know, salient and and provocative. Uh, and I can see the the commentary uh, on the chat has already begun. Uh, people very much, I think, um, resonating with how do we continue to get this more person-centered, human uh, thinking in those terms um, when we know that that clinical issues. Uh, move around this entire situation. So, John, just very quickly remind people uh, just about the chat and make sure we get people in chat and not Q&A. Yeah. yeah, if you're uh, going to share some questions or comments, make sure that they're addressed to all participants in the chat. That's at the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, your WebEx screen. Uh, that's the best place for all your guests and, uh, and everybody here in the room to see them. Okay, thank you very much. All right, well, I'm feel uh, let it let it rip, folks, or flow in as you would. Um, I think some folks. Uh, it's interesting. There was um, some some reflection, uh, Bob Chapman, as you were talking uh, that um, some people found that listing of of the cancer, the tumor board, almost a little stark. And uh, I I don't think that's what you meant to convey at all uh, in terms of uh, people there. Um, but maybe you might want to just speak to that uh, in terms of, I, I, I think maybe this is one of the things that scares patients sometimes. They see all these divisions of oncology. You were really talking about bringing the best information uh, to bear from all of this. 
this, but um, how can that also be explained in a way that sort of humanizes what's going on? Well, I mean, let, let me give an example that might help make it clearer. Let's say a patient uh, sees his doctor, um, he gets a chest X-ray, and they've got what looks like a, a tumor in their chest. So he may refer the patient to a pulmonologist who will do a bronchoscopy to get a biopsy to make a diagnosis. And that's when the cancer diagnosis is made by the pathologist. Well, in that lung tumor board, um, the medical specialist is, uh, is going to be one or more pulmonologists. They may actually describe what they saw during the bronchoscopy when they um, made the diagnosis for the group and why they uh, directed the biopsy where they did to help facilitate both the diagnosis and the staging. Um, of course, the pathologist is there to uh, describe in detail not only the cell type, but he may be able to provide more information. Um, earlier, uh, Pat described some of the different um, molecular differences that may really individualize a patient um, and, and provide clues for what may be the best therapeutic approaches. Well, a pathologist will be able to say, you know, this, that, or the other molecular marker was present that may help drive that decision. Uh, the tumor board is really a forum for open uh, discussion of individual patients by um, experts who, some of whom the patient, such as the pathologist, may never see, mm -hmm. but can bring absolutely crucial information to the table that will be important uh, for that very important discussion with the caregivers who will be um, working out the plan with the patient for what their eventual treatment uh, will be. Thanks. Thanks very this much. Is, this is Jeff. Go Jeff Lander Casper. I have a comment about how I talk to patients about tumor boards to build on what Bob just said. Um, when I ask a patient whether they want to be presented at tumor board, some of the words I often use are, would you like another opinion? And would you like an opinion from 10 different specialists for free? And after they provide that opinion, I'll share with you what they said. And then it's less scary for the patient. Then they think they're, they're getting a bargain. And they are. Tumor boards are a wonderful approach to better care. Okay. Thanks, um, Jeff. I appreciate that thought. And I see some of the comments. Uh, we'll kind of, maybe we'll pick it up this thread. Some people are asking, could a patient be part of the tumor ward or be in on that discussion? But let me uh, turn to Len first, who had something uh, to say, and then I had a question. I was going to toss one to you, Len. Go ahead. Yes. Well, imagine every uh, health uh, cancer center that I visited in my study, I've attended tumor boards including every single day that I was at Henry Ford System. Uh, I went to their tumor boards, and I was so impressed by the how uh, the cl different clinicians and specialists in the room were teaching each other. So they were talking about one patient, but all of these different uh, areas of expertise 
these people, pooling their knowledge, teaching each other. And I remember thinking, boy, if if I am ever uh, unfortunate enough to have cancer, boy, I sure would want that for me. Thanks very much. Okay. Quick question uh, for you, Len, uh, and then I want to um, turn to you, Pat, for something. How much somebody has, you know, kind of listed off a bunch of things, sometimes confusion or, or um, well, information being communicated via phone calls. Uh, maybe it's not always clear. Uh, is it urgent or is it not urgent? So sometimes mixed signals, some difficulty with access to appointments, that kind of thing. What did you find um, in as you were looking across the landscape here around how much those issues, uh, either use of the phone, maybe inappropriately in some instances, and any kind of barriers uh, for patients getting uh, timely appointments? Uh, I found a great deal of variation uh, because of the emotional intensity involved in cancer, not only for the patient, but for the family, because the family becomes caregivers in many cases. Being able to be in touch when and where you need to be in touch, being able to get assistance when and where you need assistance, whether it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday or it's 9 o'clock in the evening on a Wednesday, is critical. Uh, undue waiting for a, a serious disease like cancer involves and creates emotional suffering. We think of suffering in terms of physical suffering, but suffering also occurs emotionally. And that's certainly the case with cancer. And I'll just give you one quick example. One of my site visits was to the Hospice of the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona, just an absolutely wonderful hospice. Uh, it's a nonprofit hospice. In the Phoenix area, there's 62 different hospices, most of them for-profit. The Hospice of the Valley is the only one with a call center that answers the phone with a live person, a nurse, uh, on a 24-hour basis. The only one of those 62 hospices in that area. And to be able, when you're in a panic state, you're the caregiver and your spouse is really sick and it's a weekend and you don't know what to do, to call the call center and to talk to a live person instead of getting a message, getting a voicemail is enormous, enormously important. Thanks, Lynn. Pat, let me ask you, and you maybe, maybe there's some things on your mind you'd like to comment on. Two things jump out. I wonder what your thoughts are about this role of navigator. Um, both what you're seeing in the focus area that you work in person family center care from your own experience and then there was another question that somebody thought was the right question to ask um, a patient I'll get to it let me get to it who were you before all this happened who are you in real life I, I wonder does does that kind of question uh, make sense to you well, I'll start with your first question about the navigators. I love that idea. I think that having someone with the, that their main job, their ultimate job, is to be in touch with what's going on with the patient and perhaps family as their first touch point to be almost triaging and helping them navigate the system and helping to really be that ready person to be available to them uh, as they 
go through many different steps in the, in the diagnosis and treatment. I think that that's a wonderful, wonderful model, and I would really be interested to learn more about um, how we can help promote those in not just the big cancer centers, but perhaps how can we think about that more broadly and, and, and see if we can spread that model. I think it's a great model. In terms of, you know, who were you before, who are you after, you know, I'm, I'm the same person before and after. Um, so I think the, the, the more, for me, you know, uh, I think it's really um, just really understanding what's important to the person today. And it may not be what's, you know, what, what you think. It might not be the diagnosis. It may be before they can even consider, you know, treatment plans. It may be how they're going to manage their life their family, their children, their work, and the finances. So if that's on their mind, they're not going to be able to attend to anything else. So I think it's really the pace of the discussions, the pace of uh, involvement in shared decision-making. I think I loved Dr. Lander Casper's description about how customized you know, the discussion is, what location, who do you want with you, who do you want to talk to. You know, I think the more we can understand what's really going on today, right now with me or any other individual who's going through this process, uh, I think the more we understand what's important, we can address that and then move on to the other parts that they then can attend to if we're addressing those kinds of things. So I think that that's important. I just want to mention one thing about the screening tools. I, I love screening tools. I love checklists. I think they're really helpful in many ways. But I think actually genuine inquiry from a clinician or a care team member that's going to listen to what's going on with me is even more important than a screening tool. So I think the screening tools are fine to help, you know, help clinicians and the whole care team understanding what's going on with me. But something, you know, in a you know, checklist for me is not going to be as helpful as that genuine interaction with caring, listening colleagues in the healthcare team. Thank you. Well, Bob, let me go back to you and then maybe to Jeff about, um, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of uh, notions here that is, I, I think we're realizing it can almost seem maybe even just a little too distancing and maybe, you know, so tool and distress screening tool, um, obviously it's a way you're trying to bubble up information and perhaps some patients that may be just the way they want to indicate things. Uh, some people may want to dive right into a conversation. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, what happens to that information even? Um, as uh, I imagine some people also may not even know wh- how distressed they are. I mean, that conversation is what tends to sometimes bring things forward. And Any thoughts on that? Um, first, I'll start with you, Bob. Yeah, well, I think this is an emotionally charged situation. And um, that's when it's most difficult to collect your thoughts and really present them in maybe the most organized and complete way you'd like to. I think uh, Pat put it very well. Uh, the distress tool is simply a tool, but from my perspective as an oncologist, uh, it may present information to me that I might have otherwise missed, and a patient may have um, either been afraid to or not directly brought up um, and gone lost in the encounter when, in fact, addressing it might have gone a long way towards 
um, calming the patient and putting them in a state of mind that might make them more uh, able to be receptive and interact with the other aspects of, uh, of care at hand. So, yes, it is a tool, but it's a tool that may lead to exactly the kind of discussion uh, to which Pat was referring. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that, Bob. Jeff, uh, Landercasper, any thoughts on that? Yeah, just quickly, when I, I think of the importance of determining is a patient in distress, there are two components to that. One is yes, no, and level of yes, because there's distress for all patients. And the next is how are you going to begin to support a patient and treat their distress and provide resources for them? And um, a personal touch by an experienced care provider it almost always will be accurate in determining some level of distress. I think the purpose of the paper survey and checklist is to help make sure you don't miss anything for your treatment and the support response uh, because you don't know if their level of distress is because their twin sister died last year from breast cancer or they just lost their job and they don't think they have any money or they don't even have enough money in their pocket for gas to get home that day or a place to stay that night. So the, the checklist um, helps you begin uh, to know where to help them with. Uh, but the personal touch is always a preferred way. I like to have both, and I'm lucky enough we have a dedicated social worker who can meet first appointment with all of our newly diagnosed patients, and she knows coming out of the room before anybody fills out a survey the level of stress, but then the granularity of the survey sometimes helps us in the treatment. Okay, thanks. I'm going to swing back to you, Jeff, in just a moment to talk a little bit about what's going on with some national initiatives. I'm going to turn to Len again. There were a couple of questions about the role of, and I'm sort of, again, big sweep of uh, your visits and the people you've interviewed, uh, roles of pharmacists in some of these multidisciplinary engagement, palliative care as well. Um, as kind of part of the uh, the tent of uh, people that might be, you know, part of the entire care team. Um, of course, for this program, and I do want to remind everybody, we're talking about that early phase of diagnoses. So um, that's not to say everybody can't be kind of there um, and, you know, alerted and available right from the get-go. But I, we did decide that we would, at least for this show, try and sort of get at the, that sort of early, those early moments to see what we could um, surface there. But maybe just that quickly, Lynn, yeah. Yes, um, I've become uh, such an ardent advocate for palliative care and for hospice care as a result of my experience doing this research, uh, far more so than before I started this journey of mine, um, because with well-executed palliative care, uh, that can be concurrent with treatment care and can lift the burden off the oncologist's shoulders by helping the oncologist with symptom management and psychosocial issues and family-related issues, and as well as be a tremendous uh, help for the family and, and the patient. And 
uh, we're missing such an opportunity in this country uh, by not having palliative care become involved earlier in their cancer journey and for many patients not becoming involved at all. And same thing with with hospice. Uh, Many patients don't get hospice service at all and those who do often get it much too late. Uh, The latest statistic I've seen is that patients that receive hospice start receiving hospice services about three days before they die. Uh, That's a tragedy because of all the good that hospice can do in helping people stay in their homes uh, as pain-free as possible with their loved ones, with their pets. Uh, And I've seen firsthand in my studies just the power of well-done palliative care and hospice care. Okay, thanks, Lynn. Well, Jeff, tell us just briefly, I know I'm not giving you enough time, but uh, tell us what's going on uh, with the American Society of Breast Surgeons as kind of some of the uh, initiatives. And I also, uh, before Jeff speaks, because we're going to start wrapping up, I want to thank everybody on the chat for your candor and your honest comments. And what's, you know, Pat, I would say the resonance of what matters to you, certain questions will work for some and, you know, may make the most sense. And I, I, I really appreciate all the ways uh, people have reflected on uh, kind of uh, what, what would be meaningful uh, for them or for a family member. So, Jeff, go ahead. Okay, so very quickly, any professional organization taking care of oncology patients needs to have patients and patient advocates part of their uh, planning for initiatives. And the American Society of Breast Surgeons is uh, including patients and and new initiatives. Some of our new initiatives are we're going to try to search for gaps in patient-centered care with a breast cancer-specific patient survey. Another project um, that's been led by our current president, Deanna Atai at UCLA, is she tar- started a Twitter social media group. We recently surveyed Twitter social media participants, and interestingly, it's a great method for increasing education and for support in relieving anxiety, and we're submitting that for publication and trying to build upon that. We're going to try to be better advocates for information technology interoperability. Our patient advocate who's helped us a lot is Alicia Staley, long history of patient advocacy experience, and she says that's a real common gap in care for patients who need to move their medical records around. And then one of the most interesting things we have for shared decision-making was developed by some stars at Penn State, and we have an avatar nurse Betty online we're going to roll out this year. She knows most everything about choices for decision-making. You can program Nurse Betty with the patient's age and comorbidities and their molecular profile and their tumor factors, and the patient can just ask questions, and most of the time she can give a question, and she's available at night in the middle of the night for sleepless patients, and she can be paused and retrieved and archived and we're really excited about that, and that needs testing to see how effective it is as a model for patient education. Thank you very much. And, Jeff, I don't know, there's probably not one single link uh, to all of these that you could share, but if there is anything where people could try and stay tuned to some of these developments 
and some of what's already underway. And if you want to, you could even uh, either put, well, you're not on uh, the, you're on the phone. Email those to me and we'll get them in the, um, on the archive page for this WIHI. So uh, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, I want to give a big shout out and thank you to your, the audience today uh, for your candor and engagement in this topic. Pat Rutherford, Len Berry, Jeff Landercasper, and Bob Chapman, thank you so much uh, for your time and interest and sharing of the work that you're doing. Um, you definitely uh, generously gave of your time to help prepare and then today as well. Next up on WIHI, we're going to be talking about disability competent care on June 11th. Uh, the information about that is now uh, live on the website uh, at IHI.org if you want to find out and you can enroll. A reminder, you can download today's chat so you can all be reminded of each other's comments and reflections. Uh, you can download the slides that we shared today, and we would appreciate it if you'd fill out a brief survey, tell us what you thought of the program and how we can continue to make WIHI better. By tomorrow morning, with John's help, we'll have an archive page up for your uh, perusal of all the elements, including uh, the audio. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. And uh, we really appreciate your interest. All right. Well, thank you again uh, for uh, tuning in today. The people who help make WIHI possible include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Mario Bello, and Ruth James. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So thank you again, my guests, my audience, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. 